When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. Now, you've often heard, perhaps, that they didn't really have the right to take people's lives. They didn't have the legal right, but they still got it done sometimes. And, of course, we're going to see that in the book of Acts, that they made this happen when they needed it to happen. In Jesus' case, they took it to uh, Pilate to get it done and make it happen, but um, they could... Uh, make things happen. They could take lives when they, when they needed to, and, and they're, they're angry enough to put them to death at this point. But read on. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, this ruling council, and he ordered that the men, the apostles, be put outside for a little while. Okay, so Gamaliel is this great Pharisee teacher. He's actually Saul who we know as Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, this is his mentor. This is his, the person who taught Saul, before he became a Christian, taught Saul much of what he knew, uh, raised him in the faith, and, and gave him a lot of the teaching. So this is uh, Saul's, you know, Saul's man, Saul's mentor. And he's a Pharisee, and we're used to, what's interesting in the book of Acts, we're used to the Pharisees being the bad guys, because Jesus is always criticizing them. But you have to take that in perspective, and it's a relative thing, because the Sadducees are much worse. And in, in the book of Acts, you see that the Pharisees are actually more reasonable, more lenient. Their doctrines are closer to the Christians than the Sadducees are. Their teaching, you'd, you'd much rather have a Pharisee teacher than a Sadducee teacher as far as if you're going to listen to the Bible teaching. Now, the Pharisees had problems, and some of their teachings were wrong, uh, and, they didn't re- and they rejected the Messiah, of course, some of them, not all of them. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I'll just notice that, that this is a Pharisee. Gamaliel's a Pharisee. But um, he is going to advise them to take a lenient approach to this um, because Pharisees in general were more lenient, less hardliners than the Sadducees were about things like this. So that he, they're more reasonable. They seem to be more gentle sometimes about things than the Sadducees often were. So this is what you hear from Gamaliel. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. The apostles are gone at this point. Maybe Saul is there. Um, and that's how we have this speech recorded, but probably somebody who later was a Christian uh, heard what Gamaliel said here. We don't have any record of Gamaliel becoming a Christian, but um, perhaps Saul was here with Gamaliel and heard this, what, what uh, he said. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. They said they wanted to kill them, right? They want to kill the 12 apostles. They want to, they want to crush the church right here at the beginning. These are the 12 teachers of the church the foundation of the church, and they want to kill them all right now. And Gamaliel interferes. You know, God in God's providence, Gamaliel interferes. This is what he says. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, claiming to be Messiah. And about 400 men rallied to him. He got a following. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. Everybody thought Thutis was on the rise. Everybody thought Thutis was going to be this great leader. He got 400 followers behind him, 400 disciples of his own. He claimed he had messianic overtones maybe in what he was saying, claiming to be Messiah himself. He was killed and his movement died. Gone. No one cares about him anymore. No one believes Thutis is from God. No one cares about Thutis. None of his followers care about him. It's over. He gives another example. Um, After him. Judas the, verse 37, Judas the Galilean appeared in the na- days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He was a, 
up, you know, he was a rebel against Rome, a messianic type figure, trying to get the Jews to rise up and to bring in the new kingdom and bring in the Messiah and all that. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. There's nothing, nothing came of Judas the Galilean. He was big in his day. He's gone. He's forgotten. We just remember him as a historic note. We do know about this guy, by the way, outside of, outside of the Bible. He's mentioned in other historic sources, Judas the Galilean. Um, and so th- then he goes on to say, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So this is not a Christian, um, but someone who tries to give advice to the Sanhedrin, what he thinks. They're trying to make a decision about what to do. Looks like most people want to kill these guys, somehow get rid of them, stomp them, stamp them out. And this guy says, warns them, hey, you might find out that you're fighting against God. Be warned. If, if this is nothing, then it's going to die just like the other ones died. But there's a, but there's a contrast. If we've, been, if we've been reading the book of Acts and, read, and we've read the Gospels before this, something should come to our mind already that Jesus' movement isn't like these other movements. Because Jesus was executed, he was crucified, and did the movement disappear? Not at all. It is exploding. Instead of they were dispersed and forgotten and no one cared anymore, because when the guy was killed, it was shown that he is not from God. He is not Messiah. He is not leading some majestic thing that's, that's God's plan. It wasn't God's plan at all. It, it came to nothing, and the, the people just went back to their lives, and, they, and the, those that weren't killed went back to their lives and gave up. But the opposite happened. Jesus is crucified, and instead, his followers are thriving, are growing, growing, growing. The apostles are doing, there's like 12 people now doing miracles like Jesus used to do miracles. 12 apostles going around doing the same kinds of miraculous things that Jesus used to do. Um, and um, it's growing. And of, course, and of course, their argument is what they preach in every single one of their sermons. They make this point in every one of their sermons. They say, Jesus was executed by you. That is true. That's all true, that you rejected him and executed him, but God raised him from the dead. But God exalted him to his right hand. But God made him Messiah and king. And everything that's happening now is because God has exalted him and made him Messiah, made him Lord, made him king. And um, his movement is not dying. Instead, it's growing. And we have the advantage of seeing 2,000 years of its continued, you know, continued onrush and growth. But even then, they'd already seen thousands and thousands and thousands of Jerusalem, Jerusalemites, people from Jerusalem and, and the outer regions, um, coming to faith in this one and becoming his follower. So it's, it's the very opposite. Um, so maybe a little bit of that's in Gamaliel's mind. He's saying, these other ones die. As soon as the leader died, this happened. But we don't know. Something weird's happening here. You know, he doesn't say that, but you wonder if he's thinking something strange is happening here that he's dead and gone. They say he's alive. And the proof is that, um, look what's happening. His movement is, is anything but diminishing. It's, it's growing and growing and growing. Now, one quick, one quick comment about this. Uh, maybe this isn't even necessary to say, but uh, the, this, uh, John Stott says it about this. The Gamaliel principle is not necessarily one that works in every... It's something that we want to apply to every situation. For example, um, you could see... Uh, I've seen churches that uh, were very, very successful and grew and thrived and went on year after year thriving and growing, but they were teaching 
you know, terrible things, teaching things that not the Bible taught, even though they were, so not necessarily, you know, sometimes God lets things appear to be successful and thrive for a period of time, not forever, not until the end, but things will thrive. I mean, you can think of the example of Islam, for example. We believe Islam is wrong, and yet Islam, Islam, you know, had this great period right at the beginning where it just, and it, of course, it's still growing, but it had this period where it had all this success, military success, and all this conquest, and um, and all that. So that's, it's not necessarily, this is not necessarily the truth. Sometimes the Lord does let his enemies, those who are against him, thrive for a while. But here, it was the proper, it was the proper principle. And so what happens? Um, uh, they, uh, they recognize uh, that the wisdom in what he says, his speech persuaded them, verse 40. His speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles. Didn't persuade them enough to just let them go. They still had them flogged. Um, but, uh, but they, they were willing now not to kill them. They still had them flogged. And by the way, this flogging is that 40 minus one flogging, um, that's being referenced there. So they were beaten, you know, very seriously. This is a serious, this is the 39 lashes on some, some people have said that, uh, that they've seen the 39 lashes as 26 on the front. I mean, 26 on the back, 13 on the front. Um, and maybe that's what happened here. It probably, it was probably done different ways. But it was supposed to be something that it was a very, very sound beating that would, was extremely painful and extremely uh, harmful to, to whoever received it. So these, these tw- the 12 apostles um, get this flogging. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They give them the same order they've already given them multiple times. Do not speak in this name. Do not talk about Jesus. Do not go around proclaiming Jesus and telling people who Jesus is and saying these things about him, that he's the Messiah and he's raised from the dead. Stop talking about him. You are not allowed to speak about him in public anymore. We've already told you that many times, but we're telling you again, there will be consequences. And they let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Just as Jesus instructed his disciples to rejoice when they were persecuted, it's exactly what they do. They rejoice uh, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In other words, they saw it as a great honor to be dishonored for Jesus. To be dis- it wasn't just the pain. It emphasizes, instead of the pain, it emphasizes the disgrace. This was, a, this was being humbled. This was being dishonored. The Jerusalem, uh, before the whole city, you're being dishonored in this way. But they considered it a great honor because they were dishonored in the name of Jesus. For Jesus' sake. Uh, that was an honor to them because they got to be counted with Christ, counted on Christ's side with the Messiah. And so they considered that a great honor, as painful as it was, and uh, as, uh, as uh, a weakening, I'm sure, as it was. And they probably had to take time to recover from this. Um, they, were, they rejoiced that they had been able to be uh, numbered with, among Christ's apostles and uh, to, to suffer with him. Um, to suffer disgrace for the name, meaning the name of Jesus, of course. Uh, and just pause there again. We were talking about preaching last week so much. Um, you know, we need preachers and teachers who are uh, not preaching for, you know, their prestige or preaching for power or preaching for money or preaching for any of that, but they're preachers who love the Word of God so much, love Jesus so much that they're willing to be disgraced and humbled for Jesus. They're willing to not... Uh, get earthly success, but even earthly, you know, dishonor and earthly shame 
Um, and that's who these apostles were. What they cared about was Jesus. What they cared about was the word they had to share. They didn't care about their success. Uh, in other words, uh, their, you know, their prophet, their being raised up and all that. They, cared, they, they were happy to be dishonored if that's what, um, if that's what came with, with following Jesus. And so and then it ends, the chapter ends with verse 42. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house. They never, the apostles, never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. Okay? So, um, real quick comment on that before we look at the story in chapter 6. Day after day, so this is something going on. Once again, it looks like at this stage in the church history, the apostles have so much teaching to do that they are not just Sunday morning, the Lord's Day morning, they're giving a message and then see you, next, see you next week. But day after day, they're continuing. They're going to different places to teach. And they're teaching in two different places. The temple, because they can get a big crowd there, and then from house to house. Wherever these gatherings of wherever, a, probably a wealthier person, but sometimes it might have been a poor person, but probably in most cases it was a wealthier person because they would have bigger houses where you could fit, a poor person you could only fit 10 but a wealthier person, you might be able to fit 30 or 25 or 40 or something like that in the house in, in a particular room. And so they'd gather them together, and wherever these Christians were gathering, the disciples were just going, you know. The apostles were going from house to house, finding places that needed teaching, needed more instruction. And this was not just the gospel, who they'd brought unbelievers to hear the gospel, but also instruction in Jesus' word, what, what the gospels recorded, you know, with all the gospel we're studying on Sunday morning, the Sermon on the Mount. They're passing on that teaching. This is what Jesus told us. This is what Jesus said. He said this was true. He said to live like this. He said this is what our attitude should be. He said in this situation, this is what we do. He said the Holy Spirit does this for us, and the Holy Spirit does this. You know, that's the kind of teaching they were giving, uh, giving the people and going from house wherever they could find people, and they were finding the hunger everywhere. They were staying busy, dated all 12 of them, going through Jerusalem, house to house, constantly go, gathering in the temple probably at least once a day, if not more times. Um, to, to preach out. And when they preached in the temple, not only could they get a big crowd of Christians together, so every, many more people could hear it, but they also, there'd be people in the crowd, right? People who didn't know yet, who hadn't heard it yet. And so they would get to hear the word too, unbelievers on the, on the periphery, hearing what's being said. They're learning, and this is how they continued to gain followers and get more and more converts, more and more people coming in again and again. So this is what it looks like. The church grows um, and once again, this just shows us how fundamental this teaching and preaching is, that this is what grows the church. This is what, um, it grows us um, numerically, brings in converts, but it also grows us as Christians, that we will uh, learn and grow in the faith and, and advance in sanctification and uh, in, our, in, our, in our knowledge of God and knowledge of his word. Okay. So let's take a look at this new account. Um, any of you who have ever been in officer training have studied this passage with me before. Um, it's one of those passages that uh, is sort of fundamental to this for various reasons. And, I, and, and I'm not going to take just one take on it, but give us a few different things to think about. But it's a very interesting passage. Um, it's an interesting, all of you who, those of you who are already officers here tonight, it's an interesting passage for us to consider in the way you the way you um, lead a church. So 
Look with me at, ch at chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, which we've heard that again and again, right? That's just continuing to happen. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So that needs a lot of explanation. If you don't know what's going on there, let me explain a few things there. First of all, notice there's a daily distribution of food. There were enough poor people, uh, including widows. A lot of them are widows. There were enough poor people and widows that were part of this church of thousands and thousands of people that at this point they had developed a system of feeding the people who were not able to feed themselves regularly. They just did not have enough resource, enough money, enough uh, help, uh, family help to be able to feed themselves uh, regularly. And so the church was feeding the poor members. Not everybody. They didn't feed the whole church. They fed the poorer members of the church who were, and, the, and a lot of them were widows, who were in these streets. And they did this daily. And the apostles were, you know, the, the apostles at this point, they were the 12 leaders. So they, this was still part of what they were doing. Not only were they doing all this teaching, but they were at some point making sure all these ladies were fed uh, every day. Uh, and possibly others too, maybe older members or, or members who were, uh, you know, had, had other problems and, and, and were poor for one reason or another. So um, this is happening every day. Now, but there are two different kinds of Jews mentioned here. Both of these are Jews, okay? We're talking about, we're not talking about Gentiles here. We're talking about two sets of Jews, Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews, okay? What does that mean? Hebraic Jews are people who had never strayed far from traditional Jewish culture. They still pretty much lived the way Jews had been living for generations. They had a culture. They had the culture of Jerusalem, the way they had been raised. They were living like good Jerusalemites. They, they lived that way. They had this Jewish culture, and they lived that way, and they practiced the Jewish ways of doing things. And we don't know what all the fine details of it all were, um, but, they, but we do know some things, which I can't go into tonight. But they, but they had certain ways they did things. They also in their everyday language, spoke Aramaic. That would have been the language that they talked to each other in, in, Ar in Aramaic. Uh, they may have known some Greek, because Greek was so, but, they, but Greek was not their, their first language they went to. Greek was not the way they normally spoke with people. They spoke Aramaic, um, and they probably would have known some Greek, but it wasn't just the way they normally spoke. Um, and they also were probably native-born in Jerusalem, too. So that's, that's who these Hebraic Jews are. Now, the, the Hellenized, uh, how does the NIV say it? Does it say Hellenized? Um, Hellenistic, yeah. I mean, just Helen is the word for Greece. So they're, so they're, they're the, the Grecians, you might, your translator might say Grecian Jews or something like that. The Jew, these were the Jews who they had, for whatever reason, they had lived in the diaspora. They had lived out in um, other areas at different times, and they had imbibed and taken on Greek cult, parts of Greek culture. They knew Greek culture. Their culture had shifted. Their culture had mutated. It had taken in parts of the Greek culture. They did things that Greeks did. They lived like Greeks in some ways. Didn't mean necessarily sinful, but just Greek culture. Their language was Greek. That was the language, and that's the language the New Testament's written in. Um, their language, their main language was Greek. They may have known some Aramaic, but it wasn't the thing they were most comfortable with. They, most, they would have been more comfortable with, with the Greek language, and that was their main language. And a lot of them were immigrants. What I mean by that is there, at some point, they had moved into Jerusalem, 
after having lived somewhere else for maybe most of their lives. A lot of people would, it's interesting, a lot of people would come to Jerusalem because it was the city of David. It was the center of Judaism. Even though they'd grown up somewhere else, they might come to Jerusalem in the, near the end of life. Like, I want to live in Jerusalem. I want, and so a lot of people would come to Jerusalem and live in Jerusalem. So a lot of these were immigrants. They were Jews, but they, were, they had a different culture, a different language, and they were immigrants. And they didn't have a strong network in Jerusalem. You know what I mean? They, didn't, they hadn't been raised there, so they'd come in later in life, and they didn't have a network of... Now they did because they were in the church, right? Now they had a network. Now they knew all these fellow Christians. But before, they didn't have that network, and so they'd come in as immigrants new to the area. And then these widows, their husbands had died, and then they were there, you know? Their children are somewhere else. They're living in Jerusalem. They don't have a husband. They don't have income. You know, and they, they get into trouble. And so that's, that, that's the difference. And so two different cultures in the same church. Now, they're all in the church together, but as with any kind of cultural, whenever you have any kind of two different cultures, three different cultures in a group, in a church, there's going to be clash, right? There's going to be tensions. There's going to be strain. It's going to be, and that's what you see happening here is just that there's some kind, maybe there's a, some distrust between the two. Maybe there's some misunderstanding between the two. Maybe there's some kind of cultural blind spots between the two. We don't know what, what all, we don't know all the details of what's happening and we don't need to know because the Bible doesn't tell us, but something's going on here where there's a cultural difference. It's very interesting. There's a cultural difference in the church. It's causing strain. It's causing divide. And what the accusation that actually comes is that the widows of the Hellenized Jews, the Greek Jews, the Jews who were more likely immigrants and more likely um, the minority too, that it would have been that most of them were Hebraic and, and less of them were these Hellenized Jews. So they were the minority in the church, and they were the immigrants, and they spoke a different language, and they had a different culture, and they maybe, um, there were tensions. And they felt, whether they were right or not, we don't know, but they felt that their widows were not getting the same attention, the same care, the same uh, detail of it, you know, the, 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 just the same kind of uh, full care that he, he saw, they saw these Hebraic Jewish women getting. They weren't getting, they weren't getting that. Um, is what the accusation was. They were being overlooked. They weren't getting all the same, the same attention and the same care. They weren't getting as much feeding as the other ones were getting. We don't know the details of how this happened. Um, but what is fascinating to me, oh, and I mean, a few, a few quick ideas here. Um, you know, when you begin to bring cultural, uh, churches like to be homogenous because if we all have one culture, it's just easier to get along. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to bring different kinds of people together in the church. But that is not easy. <laughs> it's never easy to bring people together who are very, very different. Well, you know, in the United States of America, Chattanooga, there we can think of different kinds of cultures that we could bring together. And we have some of that in our church. Um, but it's not easy when people, because of the, we misunderstand each other, we, we distrust each other, there's, there's all sorts of missed signals and just all sorts of things that go wrong when you have people, force 100 people to, to be together of, of three or four different cultural backgrounds, and there's going to be tensions at those cultural lines. But, of course, the Lord Jesus can help us through that and help us to get by that and to love each other, and that's what he does here. But still, the tensions will be there. The other thing is, think about that as the growth, as they're growing so fast, they, have, they still have the same 12 leaders, the same 12 leaders, and they grow, 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 and it's still these 12 guys in charge, and it has gotten out. It, it's beyond those 12 anymore. They can't do 
everything they were able to do when they were like this, but now they're like this, then they're like this, still the same 12 men running it all, and it's not working anymore. It, things are breaking down. Um, so the growth is, need, is demanding some change, demanding some things to be done. Um, it's really fascinating that we have this insight into this moment in the history of the church that this, that this was happening at this moment, and we have a little bit. And Luke's not trying to, to hide, it, hide it from us and say, everything was hunky-dory. It was just golden. We were just ro-. No, he tells us when there were problems. We already saw Ananias and Sapphira. We already saw the persecution that's happening. Problems were coming. The, the church was, was having issues. Um, and by the way, uh, one of God's principles from the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the widows must be cared for in the church. So that, was, that had to happen. The widows had to be cared for. The widows, that had to take place. So it wasn't a question of whether the widows needed to be cared for. That absolutely, 100% had to get done. No question. The question was, how are we going to do it? How are we going to get it done? Um, once, once again, is the, is, the, is the complaint legitimate? Probably it is. It seems, the language seems to imply that to some extent it was. Maybe their accusation went deeper than it really was true. Maybe they... They blamed motivational problems, or they thought that they didn't like that the, that the apostles, who were all Hebraic, by the way, I didn't mention that earlier, but you know our 12 are all Hebraic Jews. They're good old, they're not Jerusalemites, they're Galileans, but they're still Hebraic Jews. Um, and so maybe there's suspicion. They, those guys are in charge, but they're not like us. I don't know if we can trust them. I think, you know, and so maybe there was, maybe the accusations, as they often do, went, weren't all true. Some of it was, it was a mixture of truth and falsehood, perhaps. But nevertheless, um, uh, and, but, and apostles can make mistakes, right? They could be overburdened in what they had to do. What they're going to say when they preach doctrine is going to be 100% true. What they tell you about Jesus, 100% true. But in managing something, an apostle can make a mistake or not be able to handle something, and it gets beyond him. And he says, okay, the 12 of them can say, yeah, this really has gotten beyond us. We can't do this anymore. It's more than we can handle. Um, and um, what I love about this account is this is, not, this is what the apostles don't do. They don't say, hey, we're the apostles. Shut up. I don't want to hear your complaints. I am, or, or they don't say, do you know how hard this is? They don't say, we are doing everything that we can do, ma'am. Ma'am, we are doing everything that we can do. We're doing it all. We are, do you know how many hours a day I work? I am working 18 hours a day for you. Come on, stop complaining. I'm doing all that I can. That's not what they do. They say, yeah, this is a problem. We're gonna, we're gonna work on it. They, they humbly accept this criticism. <laughs> they humbly say, yeah, it's not working the way it should work. I love that. They say, yeah, yes, something's wrong here. Something is not going right. Let's see what we can do about it. Let's fix it. Let's come up with a solution. Let's think about this. And could they accept the criticism? They don't lash out. It reminds me of what Jesus said about if anybody has anything against you. <laughs> These ladies had something against the apostles. And instead of fighting about it and saying, you're not right, you're not right about this, they said, okay, they got a valid, they've got a valid concern Let's do what we can do to make this right. And it's interesting, when they make their proposal, it says that the people were pleased with the proposal. They liked the proposal. They, this was a good solution. The ladies were happy with the solution. Uh, and the men, too. The, anybody, not just ladies, everybody who was, in, who was involved in this and concerned about this, okay? Um, so uh, read on. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together, and they said, 
This is their response to this, this complaint. And they said, it would not be right for us, the apostles chosen by Jesus, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Um, we can't stop doing what Jesus called us. That's not something arrogant they're saying. They're saying, they're not saying we're above waiting on tables. They had been waiting on tables. You know, that's what they'd been doing. They had been feeding the ladies for a long time. But they're saying, Jesus called us to preach. That was his job he gave us. We, we, we've, we've, uh, we've become overburdened, and we can't let this, this particular ministry now uh, take away our main ministry that Jesus gave us. We have to do what Jesus told us to do, which was to preach. So we've got to figure out a solution. Um, we've got to figure out, we've got to focus on preaching. Um, that's our job. We must do the ministry we've been called to do. This is a good thing. These widows have to be fed, but we can't be distracted by it because Jesus gave us a different job to do, and that's a good principle for us. We're all given jobs to do, and we, you know, we can't do it all. We have a certain jobs that we can do, that we're talented to do, we're gifted to do, God has called us to do, and we got to do that, and we can't be, let ourselves get pulled away um, uh, from, to, to, some, to other things that that diminish what God is actually like. For example, um, just the just you know just being a parent, that is a top priority. This is if you have a child and God has given you a child, you know that that's a priority. That's a job God has given you to do. And to that child, is that those children are out of the house, and so you know that's that's something that has to get done. You can't get yourself distracted by things that might be good, but aren't something you know God gave you to do. Now it doesn't mean you only do parenting; you do other things too. But you know you, you understand the principle. Um, so, um, you know, and there's a principle here for me, you know, just the fact that, that if I didn't have uh, all these, these people, wonderful people in this church, not just the deacons and the elders, of course, but, you know, Katie and Philip and David and Anna and Evan and Aaron and Rachel and Carol and, and all the people who are doing all the detail work and the deacons and elders as well, doing all the detail work, <laughs> you know, I, if I had to do all this stuff, or even just the elders, we had to do all this stuff. It would be a disaster. It would never work. But there's so many of us who are getting the things done behind, that need to be done in order for the church to go and so that I can focus on. And I really do focus on teaching. That's the main thing that I do, um, preparing for that and teaching and talking to people one-on-one. Um, and so that's their, that's their concern here. So they, want to, they propose a solution. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, telling them, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom or have the reputation of being full of the Spirit, good reputation, being full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them, the taking care of these widows uh, or of the needy in the congregation. And we, the apostles, the 12 apostles, will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So... um, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but let me mention a few things really quickly before we close. This is where, for the first time, it doesn't say that these men are elders. It doesn't say that these men are deacons. So um, I'm not going to say that absolutely. Some people use this as the, as the chapter to explain what a deacon is, and I think it's helpful to understand what a deacon is. But I think it's also just, first of all, to just, it's helpful to see what an ordained leader of the church is. This is the first time there are any ordained leaders but the apostles. That we, that we have in record, at least. So this is the first time that there are men picked out. They come from the congregation. They're, the congregation puts them forward. So we want these men, like we do with elders. Uh, now, the pastor doesn't usually come from the congregation, but at least 
He's picked by the congregation. The elders, the deacons are picked from the congregation. And they are, by their reputation, um, they are approved of, and they are picked from the congregation, and they are put forward, and they are ordained as elders and, and deacons in the church. Um, and so this is, the, this is sort of the next stage of the church. Up to this point, the apostles have been leading, the 12 apostles leading everything. But now we're moving into the new stage, which we're still in, which is now ordained leaders are going to be set up over the church. And this is God's way of doing things, that he's going to set up these elders, leaders, pastors, deacons who will lead the church. And um, the apostles are the foundation. Their teaching is the foundational teaching. The elders and deacons are not supposed to stray from that teaching. They're supposed to just pass on that teaching. But in the, in the different local places from here on out, it, local places where churches are, as it begins to spread, as we're going to watch it spread, they're going to have their local leaders. The apostles won't be the leaders of those local congregations. They will get their own local leaders who will lead. And they are serving under the apostles the, until the apostles die. Those 12 apostles are over them. And when the apostles are gone then, at that point, they, they have their writings. They have the New Testament. They have the scriptures. And they, and they continue to teach from those. And, and, and the leaders go on. And so I'm in that, I'm in that line. I'm in that, gen, that uh, I believe, this is what I believe about myself. And God's called that I am in that line, that I am one of the one. Um, one of the ones in that long line uh, that goes back, you know, to, to, to the apostles themselves. And that I'm not saying apostolic succession. I'm not talking about that. I'm t- just talking about that there are, um, that there have always been leaders in the church ever since the apostles' time. And each generation, you know, each church has continued to put leaders in place. And this is the way, this is the way God wants the church to be led. And this is the way the church. And so a lot of Christians try to operate outside of that, out, without leaders. And that's just not the way you're supposed to live the Christian life. You're supposed to live the Christian life underneath, underneath leaders. And notice what the qualifications for these men is. The fruit of the, the, that they're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, um, which you know could be talking. There could be a little bit of that, you know, the uh, the extraordinary works of the Spirit. But the primary way to see if someone's filled with the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, right? The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness. They're supposed to be wisdom. They're supposed to be wise, which means to be wise means you know what is good and you prove it by the way you live. You know what is right. You know what is good. You know what is wisdom means you know how to apply God's word to life and to each situation, and you show that by the way you live. So the men show their wisdom. They show their filling of the Holy Spirit by the fruit of the Spirit and by the lives they live. Um, now, um, one last thing I'll say tonight is uh, this is often used to, to talk about the ministry of the deacons and why, because the deacons there's this division of labor between the elders and the deacons, right? The elders focus more on teaching, and the deacons focus more on... Um, there's different ways to say it, but one way you could say it is they focus on whatever the elders really need them to focus on in order so the elders can keep doing the, the work that they're doing of, of teaching and leading the church. But usually... Uh, one of the most primary ones that the deacons focus on, and this was in the early church too, if you go back and read about deacons in the first few centuries, they were almost always working with the poor and the sick and the aged and the troubled and, you know, prisoners. That was what they did. Um, and, so, and so that was what, that, that, was some, that division of labor you see here. It doesn't say these men are deacons, but um, eventually that, be, that becomes what they're called. Uh, as we see the church go on uh, later in the New Testament and in, in history as well. 
So there's this division of labor where the elders are going to focus on shepherding and teaching and preaching and, and leading the people in, in that kind of way through, through the word. If, even the qualifications I read, you'll notice that in the, the elder list, it said apt to teach, but it never said apt to teach in the deacon list because deacons don't necessarily teach. Although, another reason why people don't think these seven guys are deacons is uh, these guys, especially the first two, did a lot of preaching. Um, uh, uh, they preached themselves, so they weren't, if they were deacons, they weren't typical deacons because they did a lot of preaching. But um, nevertheless, we see that division of labor. And so we see that these two groups, the 12 and the 7, are like, in one way, they're like elders and deacons. They're like the ones who focus on teaching and those who focus more on mercy and, any, and all the administrative and, and other things that need to be done so that, that give the elders and the, the time to focus on the Word and focus on prayer. And sometimes... Elders, I think sometimes we let, our, let ourselves get sucked into the other stuff when we, this is really our main job, but we're getting sucked into this, you know. But nevertheless, um, it does, having the deacons there um, is, is what, what churches need. And, and churches um, begin with elders sometimes and don't have deacons for a while. You see this even with church plants. You'll plant a church with elders. You won't have deacons yet, but eventually... The need presses on. We got to have deacons. I mean, we, we are getting so overwhelmed by what's going on. You see the same happen in little churches all the time as they grow. So we got to bring in the deacons. We got to have some deacons now. And then the pressure is let off the elders that they can focus more on the shepherding and the preaching and the teaching and, and what, they, what they need to do. I do want to say one last thing um, before I close tonight. I know I'm four minutes over, but let me just say this. Let me read the list of the men that they choose. This proposal pleased the whole group. They're pleased by what the, what the apostles come up from. And so they chose, they, not the apostles, the people, the congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. You know what that means? That guy ain't even a Jew. That guy's not even, the seventh one on the list is not even a Jew. He is a convert to Judaism. This is a Gentile. This is a guy who, who was a Gentile, converted to Judaism, and now he's a Christian. And now he's one of the seven in the early church. He's not, I mean, we're going to see tons of Gentiles later, but this is the first time we're seeing someone who's clearly a Gentile who has a leadership role. He's not one of the 12, he's one of the seven. And he has a leadership role in, in the church right here from the beginning. Another thing that you should note that you probably didn't jump out at you probably is, those are all Greek names. You know what that means? To take care of this problem, they said, okay, there's a cultural clash, there's a division, we're having trouble, we're not ta- you don't think we're taking good care of the Greek? We're gonna, pick, we're gonna get seven leaders, and Greek Jews is great, and that's what they said. Okay, here's seven Greek Jews we want to lead. So they've got now seven Grecian Jews. These are all Hellenized Jews. Well, one of them's not a Jew. They got, they got one convert and six Hellenized Jews, all Greek culture people. And so to deal with this culture clash, who's in, le- who's in leadership now? Now in leadership are Greek men, men, Jewish men, but Greek, Greek style, Greek culture, Jewish men. It's fascinating that they did that and that that happened right there at the beginning. And that's one of the ways they're dealing with the problem is they're bringing forward men of the other culture who are now leaders. And it's an important lesson for us too is 
know, if you want to have a church made up of different cultures, you got to have leaders of different cultures, right? You can't just have, often what happens is the person who has the power, uh, the group that has the power holds on to the power, but the apostles aren't like that. They're like, no, yeah, you, this other culture can have power too. That the seven can all be uh, of another cultural persuasion. 